This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Jane Brown, in for Libby Zneimer. Nearly one in four Canadians can't afford their prescription medicine and, as a result, don't receive the proper dosage. A new Angus Reid poll also finds that there is overwhelming support for a national pharmacare program. But that's something the provinces and the feds disagree on. Today, we'll hear more from Dr. Steve Morgan, a pharmaceutical policy watcher at the University of British Columbia. Plus, one of the most common types of cancer has received very little attention. The director of Bladder Cancer Canada will join us to talk about what's being done to change that and how you can catch symptoms of bladder cancer early. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. A refusal by Federal Finance Minister Joe Oliver to help the Liberals at Queen's Park with a made-in Ontario pension plan just might stall the process. Ontario Finance Minister Charles Souza was hoping to roll out the new pension plan in 2017. However, in a letter to his provincial counterpart, the Federal Finance Minister says the Conservatives won't help with collecting contributions or passing the legislative changes that the province is likely to require. Joe Oliver says the Ontario government's plan will take money from workers and their families, kill jobs, and damage the economy. Advisory board member Susan Eng of CARP, A New Vision of Aging, says Joe Oliver's stance could create an obstacle. I just think it's mean-spirited. Uh, on the other hand, it's consistent with their premise that they thought it was a bad idea. Uh, it wasn't clear to me at the time that they were going to take active steps to try and stop it. I think this might make it an interesting election issue. While we've been enjoying the Pan Am Games here in Toronto, a different athletic competition has just wrapped up south of the border. The National Seniors Games ended on Thursday in St. Paul, Minnesota. For two weeks, Zoomers from across America gathered to compete in a number of sports, including softball, basketball, tennis, archery, golf, swimming, cycling, track and field, and triathlon. The games are exclusively for people over the age of 50, and this year featured over 12,000 competitors. To make it to the national games, the athletes first had to qualify in local state competitions and meet minimum performance standards. The National Seniors Games began in 1987 and now take place every two years. Singer Carol King is one of a few Zoomers who've been named recipients of this year's Kennedy Center Honors. The singer is joined by filmmaker George Lucas, famous for creating Star Wars, as well as actress Rita Moreno, who starred as Anita in the film West Side Story. Japanese conductor Seiji Ozawa, who's led some of the world's most prestigious orchestras. And actress Cicely Tyson, who's earned numerous awards for her roles on stage and screen. 
The honors recognize the lifetime contributions of performing artists. The ceremonies for this year's recipients will be held on December 6th. I'm Jane Brown, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's the fourth most common type of cancer among Canadian men. And yet, bladder cancer receives only a fraction of the funding for research that cancers like prostate and breast cancer receive. Some 8,000 Canadians are diagnosed with bladder cancer every year. My mother was one of them, but she found out too late to have a chance at survival. To make sure others receive proper treatment early and funding can be improved, the director of Bladder Cancer Canada, Ken Bagshaw, joins me in studio. Ken, let's talk about why bladder cancer research has been underfunded when it's one of the most common types of cancer, especially among men. It's so little known. We need to raise awareness through all communities, the public, the families of, of bladder cancer sufferers, and the foundation and other funding agencies, and in, even more in particular, the medical profession. It, it really is the orphan cancer, and we struggle against that. Treatment, as a result of uh, lack of research and awareness, has not changed much at all in the last 40 years. What is the treatment? Is it successful in most cases? Is, is, so is that why it's remained stagnant as the go-to treatment? You're quite right, and it's an interesting question. It's about 40 years ago that a... Um, treatment was developed by a doctor at Kingston University. So it remains today the gold standard. It serves the needs of a lot of patients as long as they haven't got an invasive bladder cancer, which may necessitate the removal of the bladder and other organs. But for the 75% of bladder cancer patients who don't face removal of the bladder, there are still a good number who are averse to that in one way or another. So thankfully, there are companies that are working, small pharmas basically, working to try and find alternative ways to deal with it. There are some, but it still is a 40-year-old remedy. Mm. And it it indicates, I think, the lack of, of new research in this area. It just exemplifies that problem that we face. And then there is the whole um, awareness factor of the main symptom of bladder cancer. And I can certainly speak to this as a result of my mom passing away from bladder cancer. Her symptom had been there for quite some time, but her GP didn't acknowledge it as being something as severe as bladder cancer. He instead thought she had multiple urinary tract infections. So as a result, she did not catch her symptoms early enough and ended up dying after a three-year fight because it then metastasized. You are a bladder cancer survivor. You must have had the traditional symptoms and caught it early. I did. And um, I caught it very early, and I had a very responsive GP who got got the message right at the beginning, got me to a urologist within a week, and my tumor was out within another week. Fantastic. Extraordinary service. Yeah. But your point is really, really important. The risk of number of things come, come into play here. People will see the predominant symptom, blood in the urine. Their immediate reaction is horror and, and rejection of it, to run away from it. So the first hurdle is getting people to recognize that it is important when that happens to go and see your physician immediately. Um, uh, picking up on your this very sad story of your mother, um, what she experienced with her GP still is a very prevalent factor out there. 
They think it's urinary tract infection in many cases. They treat it with antibiotics repeatedly on over an extended period of time. In the meanwhile, the cancer is growing and expanding and, be, and perhaps moves from non-invasive, superficial as they call it, into an invasive state, much more serious, much more challenging. And so is most prevalent with women. It's partly because bladder cancer is the fourth most frequent cancer for men, but it's only 12th for women. So it so doesn't th- become top of mind for a physician. They, they instinctively discount its possibility and think it must be something else when it's the woman who comes into the office, and that's the tragedy of it. And so you really have to be your own advocate in a way, too, as a patient. If you see red in your urine, not only do you march to your doctor right away, but you push to see a specialist or you push to maybe have a CAT scan. I, I think you start by pushing to see the specialist and then Go from the, the exact treatment that should be given will be determined by them. But you're absolutely right. And that's why for the last two and a half years, we've been running a fairly aggressive campaign um, by publicizing to the public and to doctors, see red, see your doctor. It may in some cases not be bladder cancer, but don't be afraid to find out. Right. The Bladder Cancer Canada Awareness Walk, I'm very enthused about this. So the Awareness Walk is taking place at Sunnybrook Park on the 13th of September here in Toronto. It's on different days across the rest of the country. But it is really bringing attention to the disease and bringing family and friends out of survivors and of those who've passed away. And you and I will be walking together. We will indeed. And um, this is very dear and near to my heart because I happen to have the responsibility for making this walk as successful as possible within 20 cities across the country. So we have walks in Oshawa. We have walks in Kingston. We have walks in Hamilton. And so go online and Google up Bladder Cancer Canada or more specifically go to bccwalk.ca and sign up and join us in helping to raise awareness and raise funds for bladder cancer. You are an inspiration. It's a pleasure knowing you, and thank you for coming in. You too, Jane. Thank you very much. Ken Bagshaw is the director of Bladder Cancer Canada. I'd be honored if you would donate to my team for the Bladder Cancer Awareness Walk. There's a link on our website at zoomaradio.ca. Go to Hosts and then click on Jane Brown and then click on Team Jane Brown. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review here on Zoomer Radio. One in four Canadians has trouble affording their prescription medication. It's a problem that needs a solution. But the provincial and federal governments are at odds on how to get there. In just a moment, I'll be joined by pharmaceutical policy expert, Dr. Steve Morgan. Nearly a quarter of Canadians say they compromise their intake of prescription medications because they simply cannot afford the high costs of medicine. A recent Angus Reid survey also reveals there is overwhelming support among Canadians for a national pharmacare program. It's a concept that's being touted by Ontario's health minister, along with a number of esteemed researchers, including Dr. Steve Morgan at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Morgan joins me on the line. Steve, are you surprised by the number of Canadians who have compromised prescription drug coverage based on the most recent survey that's come out? I think the most recent survey adds to evidence that we've gathered over the last few years that many Canadians fall through the cracks of what could be best described as a patchwork of private and public drug plans in this country. What the Angus Reid Institute study found was that prescription 
drugs are difficult for households to afford in this country. Indeed, nearly one in four households reports that they do not take the prescriptions written for them as written or prescribed to them by their doctors simply because of the cost. And that is quite troubling. Uh, perhaps not surprising given our, given our system, but it is troubling because when patients don't fill prescriptions, their health status gets worse and they end up in hospital. That's not only bad for the patients, but it's actually more costly for the healthcare system in the long run. Patients across the country who have drug coverage either have it through their workplace or they have private insurance. This, this is obviously too expensive for many Canadians, and as a result, they're not getting the right amount of medication that they need. Yeah, the, the system that we have in Canada is one where there are provincial drug programs that provide drug benefits to different population groups, depending on what province you live in. Some provinces provide all people coverage against only those drug costs that are deemed catastrophic, that is, drug costs that exceed a high deductible each year, leaving the patients responsible to either purchase private insurance or pay out of pocket before they hit those deductibles. And then there are some provinces that provide uh, relatively comprehensive drug benefits to seniors, but not to non-seniors. And that creates a situation where we have, in provinces like Ontario, quite good access to medicines amongst people over age 65, but not quite as good access to medicines in people who are under the age 65. The solution for Canada to the problem of accessibility for approximately one in four households is to create a system that covered all Canadians for the medicines that they need. And it may be surprising to listeners that Canada is the only developed country that has a universal health care system that does not provide universal coverage of prescription drugs. Is it your belief that as a nation we can afford this as part of our health care costs? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the Angus Reid Institute report actually suggested that Canadians also believe that we can afford this if we do it right. Canadians support the idea of pharmacare, that is the idea of bringing medically necessary prescriptions under the Canadian Medicare system. They believe that it would be more efficient to have a single system covering medicines in this country. Another thing that Canadians may be surprised to know is that we actually pay the highest prices in the world for brand name and generic drugs. Led by Dr. Eric Hoskins, our health minister here in Ontario, the premiers are advocating a two-tier payment system that would see some drugs given away for free and a second tier of medicines that would be paid for privately. Your thoughts about that? Well, I know that this is an issue that was under some discussion at an expert roundtable that the health ministers hosted back on June the 9th, and I was one of the experts at that roundtable along with about a dozen other people invited to meet with the health ministers. Uh, this issue of having kind of two tiers of co-payment is actually one that may be supported by evidence. Drugs that you know absolutely the patients need to take in order to maintain their health and stay out of hospitals are the kinds of drugs you want to remove all financial barriers from. And so that means giving those medicines for free. And then there would be other drugs where you might have a co-payment. Maybe you'd have the patient pay the dispensing fee from the pharmacy as their contribution just to help with the cost. And that would be drugs that may be not quite as essential, but nevertheless ones that we don't want Canadians to bear a significant financial burden for. The federal health minister, Rana Ambrose, is urging the premiers to let Ottawa join in what she calls a very successful venture to cut the cost of prescription drugs. 
the provincial health ministers are pushing for Ottawa to unveil a national pharmacare program. How likely is that to happen? Well, certainly there is a growing uh, interest in, in a true pharmacare program. The proposal right now that Minister Ambrose has been discussing is to bring the federal drug plan to the table along with the provincial drug plans in terms of price negotiation. Um, this is, in essence, tinkering with the status quo and not really addressing the fundamental issue, which is our fragmentation of private and public drug plans in this country uh, creates inequities, it creates barriers to access to medicines, and it creates profound inefficiency in the system. What the provinces are asking for, and I think uh, will become an, an election issue this fall, is, the, is a question around will the federal government come to the table as a meaningful partner, not just with tinkering around the, the status quo, but actually changing the way we think about drug coverage and starting to create public programs that cover all people uh, for medicines that are truly essential to their health and well-being. And I'm a member of an expert advisory network that has decided that they will be putting a report card out on all the health-related platforms for the federal political parties. I've been asked to grade the pharmacare components of those platforms, but we haven't seen them yet. Well, Steve, we would certainly like to have you back on Zoomer Week in Review once those platforms are released. We appreciate I'd, your time I'd, today. I'd be glad to come back. Thank you. Dr. Steve Morgan is a professor of health policy in the School of Population and Public Health at the University of British Columbia. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Jane Brown, filling in for Libby Snymer. Dave Somerville, the lead singer of one of Canada's great vocal groups, passed away this week at the age of 81. Coming up, we'll hear one of his timeless hits with The Diamonds. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Jane Brown for Libby Snymer. It's time for your International Arts Date Book. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Bob Comsick. Jerry Seinfeld directs Colin Quinn in a comic monologue about the evolution of New York City. It's in previews at New York's Cherry Lane Theatre. A celebration of Impressionist Edgar Degas is featured in an exhibition at the Art Institute of Chicago. His painting, Seen from the Steeplechase, The Fallen Jockey, and the beloved sculpture, Little Dancer, Aged 14, join other loans and various works from the Art Institute's permanent collection. To London, England, where What's It All About is a stage production about Burt Bacharach reimagined. One of musical theater's great regrets is that Burt Bacharach only ever wrote one original Broadway musical, Promises, Promises. This show changes that. It's at the Menier Chocolate Factory. And in Rome, a citywide exposition celebrates the marvels of the Baroque period and its impact on the Italian capital. I'm Bob Comsick with the International Arts Datebook. This week, Dave Somerville, lead singer of the Canadian vocal group The Diamonds, passed away at the age of 81. Dave Somerville was working as a sound engineer for CBC Radio in 1953 when he met three other guys who shared his passion for singing. They decided to form a vocal quartet and named themselves The Diamonds. After spending a year performing locally in Toronto and developing their sound, the group headed to New York City to compete on Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts, a weekly variety show. They tied for first and earned themselves a recording contract with Coral Records. 
It was the beginning of their very successful professional career. They recorded a number of songs that charted as Billboard singles, songs including Why Do Fools Fall in Love, Silhouettes, The Stroll, Words of Love, Zip Zip, and of course, their most popular and enduring hit, Little Darlin'. That was The Diamonds with Little Darlin. Lead singer Dave Somerville passed away this week at the age of 81. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Jane Brown. Thanks for joining me today. Libby Snymer returns next week. Be sure to tune in and stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Nyman. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program director, John Vandriel. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. Home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.